comics, movies, music, video games, technology, Blu-ray, television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. Will the circle be unbroken by and by, by and by, is a better Everybody and welcome to an HHW LOD Podcast Network special report on Bioshock Infinite. I'm Jordan from Jersey. I'm joined tonight by Jim Dietz. How are you doing tonight, Jim? Hallelujah, brother, and welcome to the Light of the Prophet. <laughs> we are going to be talking very in-depth about Bioshock Infinite tonight and also about a little bit about Bioshock 1, Bioshock 2, System Shock 2 that came before it as well. This is this first period, this first section is going to be spoiler-free. Um, we will warn you before we go into a full-on spoiler section at the end. We should say if you want to go into this game knowing nothing besides what was like in trailers, bow out now. Um, we're going to talk about, you know, stuff that was in all the trailers, stuff that was in the first couple hours of the game, basic stuff you need to know to going into the story. If you want to know none of that, take our word for it. Here's a spoiler right now. The game's amazing, so go out and play the game um, and then come back and listen. But if you don't mind just knowing a few surface things, we're not going to give away the ending in this first section at all. Stick around. We hope you enjoy our discussion, and we hope it encourages you to play this very awesome first-person shooter. Absolutely. Uh, like as Jordan is saying, pretty much anything that was in the previews of the game before the game was released and is generally you know known like like maybe the stuff off the back of the box or whatever um, is fair game in this first half of the podcast. In the second half, we'll go full spoiler crazy and 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 reveal everything and talk about the whole thing. But we will warn you first, right? And uh, there'll, there'll be a little break there or whatever. Uh, but until then, you're safe. So, Bioshock Infinite is the. Kind of the fifth in the Shock series of games. Um, You've got System Shock 1, which I have not played. Um, System Shock 2, which I have also not played, but I believe Jim has, so he'll talk a little about that. Uh, And Irrational Games made System Shock 2. They also made Bioshock 1, which I have played, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Fantastic game. Um, They did not make Bioshock 2. That was uh, shipped off to another developer. And then they're back to make Bioshock Infinite, which is kind of the third in their trilogy of games that they made um, that are uh, spiritual sequels more than direct sequels. Well, they're not direct sequels at all, but they're they're spiritual sequels in the gameplay style, in the story delivery method, and in the kind of general uh, pathos and philosophies of the games. Well, I mean, to look at the DNA of the Bioshock games, I mean, you really want to go back to System Shock 2. That was the first game that Ken Levine and his irrational team, then known as Looking Glass Studios, uh, really worked on. Um, they were doing it as a standalone game, and then they, they ended up deciding to brand it as a, a sequel to the popular System Shock 1 that they really didn't have a whole heck of a lot to do with. But System Shock 2 um, kind of is kind of important to the Bioshock DNA, as I said. It, it had, uh, you know, a far advanced storytelling in a first-person shooter that had been seen up to that point, except for in games like maybe Half-Life. Um, it, it really was a more narrative-driven first-person shooter. I mean, you got to realize that at this, you know, right around that time, you know, the, the big first-person shooters were, were Quake and, and, and Doom and Unreal Tournament. I mean, not really story-driven at all. Uh, system Shock 2 was all dependent on story, and the first-person shooter was mainly a delivery uh, system for the story. Um, not and it was more of an RPG, right? It had RPG elements, more RPG elements than a normal first-person shooter would. 
but um, the story was very integral to the experience of System Shock 2, which has definitely carried forth, you know, to the quote-unquote shock series, like like Jordan said. It also has a, um, a, a I don't, not to spoil too much, but a, a, um, a friend that turns out to be a villain, uh, much like the first Bioshock. Uh, there are a lot of uh, you know, similarities in the storytelling as far as uh, and, uh, you know, the person who um, is going through the story, you as first person can't really remember everything and kind of has some holes in their memory. Um, that carried over into the Bioshock and, and Bioshock Infinite as well. Um, there are, I mean, there's a lot of things in System Shock 2 that, you know, have been refined, of course, over the years since it was put out in 1999. But, uh, you know, that's really where, where I would think, you know, the core, you know, the first, you know, seed of, of the, you know, the, of Bioshock came. And I also remember in 2003 in E3, when we first saw the, um, the, the, the first, very first preview trailer for the original Bioshock, uh, the concept trailer of the Big Daddy and the, uh, the, the Splicer, you know, uh, injecting himself for the, for, you know, and the first time we saw that, I mean, no other video game looked like that. There were, it had, like, that haunted deco look that became very, you know, synonymous with the Bioshock brand for, at that point. Um, it just really didn't look or play or seem like anything we had ever seen before uh, in that trailer. And, I mean, I remember waiting a long time for that game, as we waited a long time for Bioshock Infinite, and both games, you know, very much paying off the promise, uh, the, you know, very much delivering on, on pretty much every front. Yeah, I mean, Bioshock 1 and 2, which are, like like we said, not made by the same developers, but they they are very, very similar. Um, and and right. a lot of people like to rag on Bioshock 2. I, I think it's pretty good. Uh, it's, it's a pretty good game. It doesn't live completely up to Bioshock 1, but I didn't feel like I wasted money on it. I think the worst thing about Bioshock 2 is that it was a sequel to Bioshock. If it had been a standalone game, it would have been like Singularity or one of those kind of quirky first-person shooters that people would have really remembered. But because it had such a huge reputation to live up to with the first game, I think that really hurt it. And, I mean, there are some cool things in Bioshock 2. you got the big sister, you have the whole Sophia Lambs, um, you know, uh, religious philosophy taking over where the objectivist philosophy of, of Andrew Ryan had failed before her. Um, it, it really... Um, it. Again, you know, I think the worst thing it had going for it was it was trying to live up to the first game. And it was also one of those cases of a lot of cooks in the pot. There were five different studios uh, working on, that worked on Bioshock 2. Uh, 2K Marin, which you know uh, originally had a lot of the members of the Irrational crew that they left to go with Ken Levine when he broke off to make Irrational games. Uh, the remnants of that team, uh, they had you know they had an Australian studio working on it. They had their um, their um, the two K uh, team in the Northwest working on the multiplayer, so it was all. I mean, it was, that's probably why you know a lot of people th- find it mixed bag. There were a lot of different uh, creators involved on that, but none none of the original Bioshock team. They all left with the Irrational uh, Games, and we're working on Bioshock Infinite pretty much this whole time, which would put it in like five six year development cycle, something like that. Four and a half, five years, I think, is the official word from when they when they started to when they released it. Um, I guess it was some time in there for just uh, <laughs> resting and recuperating from finishing Bioshock One. But I mean, I think your your phrasing of the worst thing it had going against it was that it was a sequel to Bioshock is absolutely true. In addition to the fantastic story of Bioshock, the thing that really grabbed people was this world of rapture. You'd never really been anywhere like that in a video game, and if you haven't played Bioshock. Um, the game begins with you, you're in a plane, the plane crashes in the ocean, it's 1960-something, I forget exactly off the top of my head. You find a lighthouse, which is right near the plane crash, you get in an elevator or a bathysphere, and you go down into this world, this city that's been built at the bottom of the ocean, and it's unlike anything you've ever seen before in games, and you're going through this world, and it's a, it's a 
it's it's an amazing story, but it's also the story that's being told through this world and the art design and the general feeling, and that's fantastic. Second game, you don't have that same newness, that same I've never seen this before in the city that you did with the first game. So even though the story is actually pretty good in Bioshock 2, you don't have that same just overall feeling of awe for your surrounding and so what's going on. And that really does hurt it in the end. Even though it's a solid game with a solid story, it doesn't have that newness to it. Right. I mean, that first reveal of Rapture in Bioshock 1 is probably one of the best moments of gaming in the past 10 or 20 years that I can think of. You know, just one of those jaw-dropping, wow, I've never seen anything like that. That's incredible moments. And, you know, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Once you've seen it, it can't be unseen. You know? Right, exactly. And so, like Jim said, four and a half, five years passes. They're working on this game, Bioshock Infinite. And it was, what, two or three years ago now that we saw the first trailer come out of E3, um, which, I mean, they've changed a lot since then. But I know I was looking forward to it um, with beta, with beta breath. I don't even know if that makes sense. I was very highly anticipating this trailer. And I think the trailer delivered exactly what I wanted, even though it's not what I expected. I mean, this was a new world. This was something, again, that really had that newness to it. Everything about it was something you hadn't seen before in a video game and just really drew you in. It's uh, it's incredible. Yeah, again, instead of trying to, to, to copy what they'd done before, they, you know, they went in a total different direction. Instead of a giant, you know, a grim art deco city under the sea, we are first introduced in Bioshock Infinite 2, a beautiful, hopeful, literal city in the clouds, you know? I mean, what could be what could be further from, you know, one environment to the other? They literally went in the other direction. Right. <laughs> um, but as in the original Bioshock, and going back to System Shock 2, all the hallmarks of, of Irrational Games are there. Everything is well thought out, well crafted. Um, the story is impeccable. Uh, the, the, the character of Elizabeth is one of the best... AI characters I've ever played with in any video game. Um, and she never gets in your way. She is never you're never in an escort mission situation like you, you know, are in so many other games when you have to travel with a companion. Um, everything everything about this game, like like you said, um, just speaks of, of being well thought out, quality intelligence you know, behind every every design motion you know motive and and every every nuance every piece and that's uh, again you know that's kind of a hallmark of what happened with the first bioshock and you know this that's what happened with this now as well right absolutely and and so we're going to now switch a little bit into talking about the general setting the general premise of bioshock and like we said we're going to stick away from spoilers for now we'll get into that later believe you me but you play as booker dewitt and Booker DeWitt is not a good guy, in, in all honesty. He uh, participated in the massacre at Wounded Knee. This this game, actually, uh, you know, we should say, this game deals a lot with American history and history in general. There will be some things you might need to Google and, and find out about, especially if you went through the American public school system. You might not be as familiar with things like the Boxer Rebellion or Wounded Knee or the... Uh, uh, 1893 Columbia's World Exposition, which are pretty important to the to the story of this game. They they will explain the things in game that you need to understand, but uh, you know they're not shying away from American history, and they don't shy away from really uh, um, uh, hard ideas as well, such as um, during that um, you know what they call the era of American exceptionalism there around the turn of the 20th century. Uh, they don't shy away from the racism. Uh, in the story, there, there's a really, I remember there's this one, I think it's on a voxophone or, or, um, or maybe, you know, it's an NPC who says it, but, you know, in this, you know, beautiful paradise in the clouds, somebody's got to pick up the garbage, 
you know, somebody's got to sweep up. And, uh, I mean, you go as you go through this game, it doesn't shy away from things like, you know, separate restrooms for colored and Irish. And, you know, and, you know, those restrooms are all torn down and, and kind of beat up. And then you go into the whites only restroom and it's a, you know, it's a virtual wonderland in comparison. Uh, it doesn't shy away from, from the ugly truths of that history. I mean, we, we remember history, you know, what is it, you know, victor, the victors write the history, but it doesn't, it doesn't shy away from the dark side of that, that part of our history. either. Yeah. This is a world that you're entering, which is fully realized. And in real life at this, you know, if, if Jim or I were to actually walk into the city, neither one of us would have been welcomed, you know, for various reasons, you know, me for being part Irish and, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting to walk into this world where while the people seem very inviting, you know, under the surface, you yourself would not be welcome there. Well, the very first, as you, I mean, at the very first part of the game, as you say, your name is Booker DeWitt, and very in very basic, most basic terms, um, you have to um, free this girl named Elizabeth from the city in the clouds, Columbia. Uh, bring us the girl and wipe away the debt. Yeah, basically, after wounded knee, you went back to regular life. You quit the army because you know the the atrocities committed there was something you just couldn't handle, and you went on to other atrocities. You became a Pinkerton. More American history there. And eventually, after that, you accrued these huge gambling debts, you became a drunk, and hey, you brought this, uh, this uh, not ultimatum, but hey, you want your debt wiped away, go to the city of Columbia, rescue this girl from a tower, it's very, you know, Disney princess style in that way, rescue the princess from the tower, we wipe away your debt, it's all good. And that's your basic setup for this game, is you in a rowboat being rowed out to a lighthouse um, with, this, with this one goal, your private eye, go get her, your debts are erased. And again, you know, from the very outset, the, the, the entire game is telling a story. It's, it's, um, it's all about atmosphere. It's all about what you find in the world that tells the story of the world. And I think it's very important, important distinction to make really quickly that, you know, in the first Bioshock, our protagonist pretty much did not speak was kind of nameless until after the fact when uh, they, I guess they just called him Jack. In this, you definitely are a person. You are Booker DeWitt. You are that, that role. And what you do might not be what, what you would do, you know, in that situation because he's not, as you say, uh, an incredibly, uh, you know, he's no, he's no saint. You know, he's no, he's no tin, tin god or whatever. He is fallible. He has made mistakes in his life. And he has many regrets. And, uh, I mean, it's a, definitely a fully realized character that you're playing rather than just a nameless cipher. Right, and he's uh, voiced by Troy Baker, and all the, all the voice acting in this game is uh, fantastic. But Troy Baker is Booker DeWitt. The other main protagonist of the game is Elizabeth, voiced by Courtney Draper, who also does an amazing job. And this was, you know, like Jim said, this is a big shift away from Bioshock 1 and 2, and System Shock as well, where you play this pretty much nameless, faceless, and completely voiceless protagonist. The protagonist is you... And what you do in that game is an extension of yourself. In this game, it was a very clear shift for Irrational where you are playing this specific character. And there, there are story, storytelling reasons for that, but it was a very interesting shift of, of feeling from the game. Because like you said, there's things that Booker's going to do that I wouldn't do, um, that things that he's forced to do, things he has to do that are just very different. But it's you're living the story of this character, and it becomes very important as the game goes on. But it's also immersive in a different way it's not immersive in that you are the person who's in the city it's immersive in just creating the story and creating the fiction which is very important as the game goes on and and uh, you as that character it also i mean things that you do as booker to what affect your relationship with elizabeth yeah 
Um, very much so as the story goes on as well. I've got to say that the moment that you ascend into Columbia really rivaled that first moment of seeing Rapture for the first time. It's just an environment like you've never seen before. Just very unusual and unto itself. Very, very singular kind of um, virtual environment. And just beautiful. Beautiful to look at. I know I'm playing on 360, so I'm not getting the full effect that the people on PC are, you know, playing at a higher resolution. But, I mean, even on the Xbox 360, the graphics are just impeccable and beautiful, and the art direction is just incredible. There are just little subtle things that give you a feeling of an ease. Like, um, I, I think, you, Jordan, you mentioned when we were discussing this before, like, when you're standing on a, on a sidewalk in Columbia and you look to your right and you see a giant building, but it's kind of bobbing and weaving a little bit because it's on top of balloons and rockets, you know, it's floating in the sky. So it's not, you know, it's not tethered. It's not solid. When you first in the game, you you get to Columbia, the city, which we'll talk about in a minute here. Um, and when you first get there, you're indoors and you walk, you open this door after a certain period, some story stuff happens. You open this door and you see Columbia for the first time, not through a window. And like, like Jim's saying, you walk onto this platform, you're floating in the air, you know, the platform's floating in the air, and you look to your left and right, or you just hold the camera still, and every building, for the most part, is moving independently. And it is this bizarre feeling of, I don't think vertigo's the right word, but almost like you've been riding a uh, an elevator for too long, or you're, you're on a helicopter. If anybody's ever been on a helicopter ride... Um, it can be a very unsettling experience for your stomach, and just this feeling of everything moving on its own just adds to the feeling of this is a real place, even though it's obviously not, but this is a real place with real people. It's not like Rapture in Bioshock 1 and 2, where you get there after everything's fallen apart. You are entering the city at basically the zenith of its existence right before everything goes to hell. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was something Ken Levine said while the game was in development, too, is that in Bioshock 1, when you get to Rapture, the, uh, you know, quote-unquote, the party's over. You know what I mean? The, the civilization has fallen, the city has fallen, and, and, you know, everything's already happened, and you find out about it through the audio logs or whatever. In Bioshock Infinite, you watch it unfold. Right. You know, I mean, and the, those early scenes that you're talking about, the the closest thing I can approximate them to is if you've ever been to Walt Disney World on Main Street, USA, where everything is just hyper-stylized, American, and uh, kind of a, a, a nostalgic look back at an America that never really existed in anywhere, but, you know, like a Norman Rockwell painting, perhaps. Right, um, right. It just, you know, very much, um, you know, uh, very patriotic and... and we see that theme throughout throughout you know Colombia, the kind of uh, deification of the founding fathers. You know, when you when you go into Colombia, one of the very first things you have to do, and I'm not giving away too much because this is in like the first I don't know, 20 minutes of the game, you have to be baptized before you are allowed into Colombia. You have to be baptized, and they don't baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They baptize you in the name of the founders, which are the founding fathers, the prophet who is the antagonist, uh, Zachary Comstock, who I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, and our Lord. So there, there's this kind of... And then you you walk out into a garden where there's a giant statuary of Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and and George Washington. Um, again, you know, deification of, of the Founding Fathers is kind of American exceptionalism. And then we, again, as I mentioned before, we see the darker side of that as the story goes on. It's not all, you know, uh, wine and roses, as it were. And Jim's not exaggerating when he says deification. They're literally being prayed to by the people of Colombia. <laughs> you know, this is 
this is a, you know, a very real thing to them. And so let's talk about Columbia for a minute. Um, and this is going to delve into some history, some real-world history that informs the creation of Columbia that isn't really going into the game, um, into the plot of the game, because it's um, it's an alternate history, of course. We, spoilers, there's no real floating city out there called Columbia, as far as I'm aware. Uh, Prove it. <laughs> I prefer to believe there is, so go ahead. <laughs> so in 1880-something or 90-something, I forget off the top of my head, at the World's Fair in Paris, they unveiled the Eiffel Tower. This was a big deal, and it was this huge mark of, look how modern we are, look look at this amazing feat we can do. Uh, and, you know, you and me, Jim, I mean, you're older than I am, but, you know, it's the Eiffel Tower. What do you do? It's, it's a nice monument. It's beautiful. But if this was a big deal in real American history, in real world history, this was a big deal when they unveiled this. And so the U.S. government, because for some reason we've always had this weird, weird rivalry with France, the American Revolution notwithstanding, um, and Valley Forge and all that kind of stuff, they went, well, hey, the Chicago World's Fair, the, the, the Columbian World's Exposition, which was its technical name, but it's better known as the, as the Chicago World's Fair is coming up in 1893, we need to respond to this. We need to show that we're just as modern, that we're more modern. And they built this thing called the Great White City in Chicago. And it was a fake city. I mean, it was just designed as basically a model of, hey, look, this is the city of the future, almost a Tomorrowland, like, like John, uh, Jim was saying, like a Disney thing. This is... This is where America's going. And there's actually some very interesting real-world stories there. One of America's first serial killers uh, took root in uh, in the Great White City, and that's a very interesting thing that doesn't really have to do with this game because that happened in the real world as opposed to Columbia. But so in the fiction of Bioshock Infinite, um, there was a scientist who found a way to uh, freeze particles in time. And if you can freeze something in time, if I throw a water bottle up in the air but I freeze it, it's not going to fall back down because it's just stuck there. Time isn't moving for it. So this scientist figured out how to do it. They meet this guy, Zachary Comstock, who, who considers himself a prophet. He's kind of a Joseph Smith-style character, but it, not in that... They're, they're not demonizing Mormonism in this game, although I've some, seen some people see, say this, but it's more just a... He sees himself as a prophet, and he very much Americanizes a religion, so it becomes where you're praying to the Founding Fathers, that kind of thing. It's loosely built on Christianity, but it's been very, very much skewed by this singular persona of Zachary Comstock, who's the, the, the antagonist in the game. So he comes to the scientist and basically funds the scientist's research, and instead of the Great White City at the Columbians World Exposition, instead... The U.S. government comes behind this and says, hey, what's better than a fake city in Chicago? What about a real floating city of the future? So with Zachary Comstock, with the federal government, and with the scientists, they fund and create a floating city, and they launch it from the World's Fair in 1893. Well, because they're so much more American than America, they, they view themselves as higher than America in you know both literal terms because they're floating above and philosophical moral terms, the city eventually starts to disagree with the things America is doing. Cue the Boxer Rebellion over in China, and Zachary Comstock, the prophet, the prophet Comstock, decides, hey, I know what I'm going to do, and he goes over, he takes Columbia, and they bomb the Boxer Rebellion, which does not make the U.S. government very happy. They call Columbia back home. Columbia secedes from the Union and becomes its own independent state. And so that this is the place you're entering in the beginning of this game, is a kind of American city, but they consider themselves more American than America. It's hyper-religious, it's hyper-jingoistic, um, 
all these different things. It's very much of uh, of its time of the Gilded Age. You're entering the city, and it's a whole new world. It's a whole new ballpark. It's a whole new game. It's something you've never quite seen before. And the story is told to you through these little audio recordings called voxophones, through a Nickelodeon-type device called a kinetoscope. You get little silent movies. You get little sound clips. You get to hear the people speaking. You walk through this initial section of the city, you're listening to the music, you're listening to the people talking about the fair because it's the anniversary of them seceding from the Union, so it's kind of their 4th of July, it's actually it's actually the, the 6th of July, actually, 1912, which is where the game starts, and it's, it's amazing, you can just wander the city, you can wander the fair, you can play fair games, you know, pick up the giant hammer, the giant mallet, and try to make the weight uh, hit the bell at the top of the, uh, the top of the tower, you can play little shooting gallery games, you can just walk through the city um, before the real action starts. And I took my time in this area. I, I went around and I just explored, found everything I could, and was uh, really brought into the city. Something that's interesting to me that kind of struck me is that Zachary Comstock, the antagonist of this game, is pretty much the polar opposite of uh, Andrew Ryan yes. from, uh, from Bioshock 1. Whereas Andrew Ryan wanted to get away from religion and government and allow man to be unfettered by those things, Comstock is, you know, grabs the cross in one hand and the flag in the other and, and hugs both close to him. Um, he's almost a diametric opposite to, to the original uh, Bioshock 1, which is interesting. And, you know, like we were saying, they went as far in the other direction as they could from Rapture. You know, in, a lot, in some ways, you know, Bioshock Infinite has similar mechanics to the original Bioshock. You have, you know, the, the, the left hand you have, you know, in Bioshock 1 they were called plasmids, in this they're called vigors, and in the right hand you have your gun and your weapon or what have you. You know, some of the things have carried over, but then some of the things are as far opposite as they possibly could be. Yeah, so this is a first-person shooter, like uh, like we're alluding to. You've got your, your in this game, vigors, which are basically spells. You can shoot fireballs, shoot lightning bolts, uh, throw a flock of crows at somebody, which is one of my favorites. Um, and then you've got your 1912-era guns. Machine guns, rifles, sniper rifles, pistols, volley guns, different things like that. Pretty standard fare for a video game, and you find them over time. But uh, should we go into the first section of the game where you start to realize something is weird? And like, like Jim said before, this is uh, 25 minutes into the beginning, so it's not really a spoiler, but the, the fair scene? Like I was saying before, you, you get that general feeling of unease from seeing the buildings rocking back and forth. And but it looks they, like a utopia. Despite the unease, it looks like the world's perfect city, quote-unquote, you know. I just I recently saw the movie uh, Room 237, and there was a, a, a thing somebody, one of the um, people talked about in there that Stanley Kubrick would do in his movies. He would purposely mess with the geography, like in The Shining especially. He messed with the geography of the hotel, so say a, a certain room that they go into couldn't possibly be there from the context clues that you see around it. You know what I mean? It wouldn't fit. It had windows and places. There should be no outside wall, that kind of stuff. Exactly. And I kind of got that, and it's very subtle, but it has a very, like, like uh, a feeling of unease, like I said, in the background. It uh, uh, puts across. And I definitely, you definitely get that in Columbia as you walk through it, you know, from walkway to walkway and from, you know, floating building to floating building. Um, I think the, the one thing that really kind of struck me as odd, I think that you're alluding to here, is as you go by, there's a, a floating uh, barge, and on there is a, a barbershop quartet uh, singing God Only Knows by the Beach Boys from the 1960s. God only knows what I'd be without you. 
very uh, weird, anachronistic kind of thing that sticks out and just kind of adds to your general feeling of, 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 of weirdness and kind of, um, like I said, just kind of that unease that you feel when, when you're there. I mean, you're in this bright, shining utopia, but then uh, there's this undercurrent of strangeness um, that, that is just everywhere that kind of pervades it all. It's, it's a really cool effect. And, and, and there's a lot of these anachronistic covers in the game, and they're fantastic, particularly God Only Knows. It is a gorgeous barbershop quartet rendition of that song. But actually, that's not what I was referring to. Um, I'm, I'm referring to, you go a little bit further into the fair, and I think this will probably be the last story thing we talk about. Like we said, it's very early in the game, first 20, 25 minutes. Like I said, it's very idyllic, very utopia. Of course, nothing can ever be a utopia. But you get to the fair, you get to the raffle, you, you pull a baseball out of a, a big uh, bowl, basically, a big basket of baseballs that have a number on it. You get number 77. And uh, guess what you win? Because it's a video game. You win the raffle. And what do you win? You are told you win first throw. And the curtain goes up, and from behind the stage comes a, a interracial couple, a white male and a black female, who have been tied to stakes with racist, racist caricatures drawn behind them into some of the scenery. And you're you're told through both what they say and what you can infer from it that that they were caught in some type of relationship, and you have won first throw of a baseball, not the last throw. This is the first of going to be many throws at an interracial couple simply for the fact that they love each other, and it is one of the most offset, uh, uh, upsetting, unsettling, unexpected things that could have happened at that moment. Like we said before, even though there's something weird about the city, it feels perfect it feels beautiful until this moment where the the top layer of this is gorgeous is ripped away and suddenly you see what these people are really about how they really view the world b- below them and how they actually view other people and of course from there that's where the vi- <laughs> that's where all the violence in the in the first person sh- first person shooting really starts but it's the first thing where you see it and you're like wait hold on a second what is happening now Again, like I said, it doesn't shy away from the dark side of, of American exceptionalism from that period. Um, you know, we, we, America was still very divided by racism and class, too. Um, as you progress through the game, um, and again, not not really a big spoiler, there's a group called the Vox Populi, who are, are you know, kind of the have-nots to the Colombian haves, and uh, they're very much reminiscent of the Russian Revolution of that period, um, the working class rising up to take what has been taken from them. And um, it, this game just not does not shy away from from the truths of that period, and this is definitely one of the. I mean, racism is definitely, you know, still very prevalent in that period of time, especially among you know these feet white middle class people living in, in a cloud city. You know, yeah. Um, it's just uh, it, it is very. It, I thought it was very smart and very bold storytelling choice for them to keep that kind of stuff in this story to keep it, you know, more of a realistic tale. I mean. Again, you know, on one side you have one side of the coin, you have the idyllic paradise. And on the other side of the coin, you have the underclass that keeps it all running. You know, right, right. And, and I mean, we we should be clear: this game is not racist itself. It is just simply illustrating. I mean, of course, this is a hyper reality, but the realities of that time. Um, it's not anti-religion, but it's just showing you the realities of when these things are pushed too far. What can happen? Um, the upsides and downsides. It's not on any one side of the haves or the haves nots. It shows you the good and bad of each. Um, but it's just exploring this section of American history, you know, 1912, that 
isn't really focused on in you know American history classes. It's not really well known by people, at least of my generation. Jim, you may be slightly different, but you know I'm a very well-read person, and even I had to refresh myself on uh, Wounded Knee and the Boxer Rebellion. I, of course, knew a, a little bit about them, but not much. And I, I'd imagine for the average uh, student who may be playing this game, or the average person who is educated here in this country, these are not going to be readily accessible, or not readily accessible, but accessible in terms of their memory, things that they're going to remember from their schooling, and, and it's probably going to influence a lot of people to research this stuff, research some American history that they're just simply not familiar with. I don't think it's dependent, that knowledge is dependent to enjoy the game now. Oh no, absolutely not. They explain everything that needs to be explained. But I'm just saying, it, this is not a part of American history that most people are readily familiar with. Certainly not the dark parts. And even beyond the storytelling, though, I mean, the, just as a general review, I really enjoyed the the gunplay. I enjoyed the the combat, um, the skylines that you're able to use. The kind of they're kind of like a one person roller coaster. They're amazing. Uh, you jump onto the rail and then uh, you know supposedly magnetized to the rail and you can use these in combat you can jump up jump down you know death from above uh, you can fire your weapon from from the sky rail uh, it's just really uh, incredible it, it really adds to the combat i find a lot um, and to the experience overall it kind of keeps keeps things fresh i really you know as far as you know complaints with the game uh, i really don't have any i thought it was well paced all the way through i thought the, again, you know, the story is incredible, the art direction is impeccable, and it passed my litmus test of everything making sense by the end. Right. Um, I mean, I will say I, I've read a plethora of reviews and watched a plethora on YouTube um, just to get different feels, and, and the, the, the majority of them are very positive, um, pretty much almost exclusively positive on the story, which is amazing, and we'll get to in the spoiler section here in a few minutes. Um, I will say, if you are a hardcore first-person shooter, I have seen and read some reviews that can point out some of the things that people think are detriments to the game in terms of the actual shooting. If you're a person who understands the difference between hit progression and prog- or, or hit detection and progressive detection or whatever they're called in first-person shooters, clearly I don't know the difference. But if you are one of those people who knows the difference between those and really takes your first-person shooter games exceptionally seriously, you may want to look into that. I wouldn't say that you should let it dissuade you from playing the game. It may not be the world's best... Uh, first-person shooting mechanics, although I had fun with them, but it may be something that you want to educate yourself about before you play it if you are an extreme hardcore first-person shooter who, you know, has opinions about every single um, minute detail of the mechanics of that. But from a story perspective, certainly well worth playing. From a gameplay perspective, I had a lot of fun. I don't have those complaints, but again, I'm not so hardcore into that that I know all the ins and outs of, you know, certain things that are considered preferable or not preferable in there. So Jim talked about the skylines in terms of a really cool mechanic, this this roller coaster-like thing that you can ride around on and shoot from and get from place to place, but also just use as a combat tool. The other big thing that's introduced is Elizabeth. Now, she's important to the story. We won't talk about the story portion right here, except she's the girl you're trying to rescue from the tower and get her out of the city. Well, no surprise, you get her out of the tower, but it's, you know, the rest of the game is trying to get her out of the city, of course. Um... So once she's out of the tower, she's with you for almost the entire game, and she works as um, as a companion character. You, you the, Your character talks to her, she talks back. Um, it's a very endearing character. You will find yourself falling in love with this character very quickly, very well voice acted, very well animated. 
um, and has a lot of dynamic AI for the non-combat portions where she will just find things in the world and comment on them or interact with them. She won't always do it. Sometimes she will, sometimes she won't. You can look into, you can find interviews and stuff online about how they design that, and it's really quite fascinating. But in combat, she, it is, like Jim said, a escort mission. Pretty much the whole game. But, don't let that dissuade you. This is kind of the inverse of an escort mission. You are the one being escorted. You are the one's going to die. She's never going to She's never gonna die from getting shot. You don't have to worry about shooting her. She's never going to get in the way. She's never going to get stuck behind a doorway or something like that and not be able to progress. You're never going to have to worry about her dying because uh, she got in the middle of a firefight. Now you got to restart. In fact, you're the one who's going to die. She's going to throw you health kits when you need them. She's going to throw you extra ammo when you need them, extra uh, salts, which is your mana for the game, basically, when you need it. Um, she'll find money in the world and throw it to you. She'll point out lockpicks on the ground that you can pick up. But you don't have to lockpick any doors. She does it. There's no dumb lockpicking minigame that's going to frustrate you to, all, to, to no end. She handles all that. It's one of the most amazing... Um, companion characters I've ever seen in a video game. It works so well. She never gets in the way. She's always there to help you, and she's a great character to have around. Something that really struck me was at one point in the game, you get separated from her, and at that point, you really miss her. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. When, especially in combat situations, we get used to her being able to you know, throw you, uh, you know, um, you know, power ups or, or mana or whatever you need. You know, at that point, I mean, you really kind of miss the character when she's not around. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, for all those people out there who played Resident Evil 4 and still have nightmares about the escort missions with Ashley, this is the exact opposite of that. This is, this is uh, an escort that is helping you rather than, you know, trying, you're trying to keep them from being you know, one hit killed or whatever. Um, she's never, as the, and the game even explicitly tells you, you know, Elizabeth will not get in the way. She will not, you know, she's not a liability and she can help you during combat. And they're right. I mean, she's a great AI too. The, the character is just really well realized. And I just, I can't even imagine the time and effort it took the programmers to get Elizabeth to work so well in this game. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, it's a monumental effort. I love the meme I've seen going around online, which is, it's a picture of her, and it just says at the top, worst escort mission ever, and at the bottom it says, Booker keeps dying, he keeps running out of ammo, I can't believe I have to keep this idiot alive the whole time, and it's so true, she's the opposite of every escort character you've ever had to deal with, she's the good one, you're the one who sucks, and I, I loved it. But there's even portions, like, I mean, I mentioned briefly the repos AI, the, the, the non-combat stuff, there's a, uh, very early in the game, there's a, a, a portion where you're um, on a kind of a boardwalk area of Columbia where um, it's, it's, it's very much modeled on 1912 Atlantic City. And if you just walk to the next part you're supposed to go, no problem. She, she walks right with you. She doesn't get in the way. But if you just explore and walk around, which is always something you want to do in a Bioshock game because you're going to find those audio files in different parts of the story that just help flesh everything out. But she will come up to a bucket of rocks and just start skipping them into the ocean. Or she will investigate a painting that interests her. Or she will, you know, just do all these different things in the world if you give her the chance to do them. And if you don't, you're not gonna, you're not gonna lose anything from the story. But the immersion that she adds, how real she feels is so amazing, particularly in those non-combat situations where she can just say, hey, Booker, this painting's interesting. Or I think I saw that person somewhere over here before. It's just very interesting how they got it to work. And, and like I said, Google some of those interviews with Ken Levine, the creative director of this game and head writer, because 
when you understand just how much work went into making this character work right, and it took them a long time and a lot of money to get it down pat, it is amazing, especially when you see what's going on under the surface that allows her to feel so incredibly real. Absolutely. And not to put too fine a point on it, because obviously Jordan and I both really enjoyed this game a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, other than probably Grand Theft Auto V, or barring some uh, unforeseen, you know, unannounced game uh, that we'll hear about at E3, this is probably going to be my game of the year. I'd be really surprised to see something take its place, but I'll keep an open mind. I, you know, this is a fantastic game in terms of gameplay and story, one of the best stories I've seen in any medium uh, recently, for sure. But hey, if something else can top it, that's not a detriment. That just means there's two really awesome things out there this year, and I'd be really excited to see that. It would be great, yes. Yeah. So, uh, Jim, I think we've we've covered everything non-spoilery, unless there's anything else you want to add. Just play the game. Uh, again, uh, the, it's just an incredible game. It's an incredible experience. It's, if I if I had to uh, go to the Supreme Court tomorrow and you know, give an Exhibit A as to why video games should be considered an art form, I'd probably use this as my Exhibit A. So uh, I can't give it a higher endorsement than that. You really should play this game. Uh, It totally gets my seal of approval as well. And uh, we'll take a break now, and when we come back, it'll be all spoilers all the time. So you've been warned. Like we said, we highly support this game. We highly endorse the game. Stop listening now if you haven't played it. Believe me. Go get it. Play it to the end. Wait for your brain to drip out your ears, and then come back, and uh, we'll explain to you what just happened. And, uh, and, and, well, we'll see if we can figure out exactly what happened. I have some good ideas. Jim has some good ideas. And we've heard lots of other good ideas online from various people and some pretty awful ideas as well, quite frankly. Um, and we'll get into all of that right after this. Okay, welcome back to our Bioshock Infinite full podcast, and at this point, we are switching fully into spoiler mode. This is your last warning. I ain't warning you again. Get out of here. Uh, So, uh, a little bit of background. Jim and I have now both played the game beginning to end. I've actually now played it three complete times. I played it on medium. I played it on 1999 mode, which is the unlockable, or you can unlock it with a code as well, but uh, hardest difficulty. And I played it on easy just because I had a few more achievements to rack up. This is actually the first Xbox game I have 1,000 pointed, meaning for anyone who doesn't play Xbox, I got every single achievement in the game. It's the equivalent on a PS3 of uh, platinuming the game. Um, And I don't say that just to be like, hey, look at me, but I feel like I have a very good understanding of every aspect of the story of this game, which is going to be important as we get into the spoilers, because like I mentioned before, we've seen some interpretations online both in video and written form and, and audio form that were good, and we've seen some that were bad, where clearly the person giving their interpretation did not find all the story bits or did not understand them, um, because I can understand some things in this game having an interpretation factor, but others are pretty clearly laid out if you find out that information um, from some little corner over there that you didn't explore. Um, it's all there, uh, and we'll get into it now. But uh, Jim, what is your background with playing the game now at this point? Well, before it came out, I played through Bioshock 1 and Bioshock 2. I got that Ultimate Rapture Edition, uh, kind of in preparation for it. 
I played all the way through once on uh, medium uh, and to completion, and now I'm, I've just started my 1999 run. Uh, something else I wanted to point out really quickly, I um, because of my pre-order or my uh, thing at Game, GameStop or whatever, I ended up getting a copy of the, uh, the strategy guide for free. And in the strategy guide, they have... Uh, transcripts for all the Voxophone recordings. Very nice. And having all those in one place and being able to read them, like one right after the other, uh, in their entirety, really uh, filled in any of the gaps I had in the story. Now I think I pretty much completely understand the whole thing. So should we give a brief rundown of the entire plot up to the ending and then really spend some time on the ending, I guess? I suppose. Okay. So you get to Columbia. You rescue Elizabeth from the tower. Uh, you're quickly attacked by the Songbird. Uh, you end up on Battleship Bay. Uh, you get reunited with Elizabeth because she's only separated for a few minutes. Uh, you then go meet Slate, where you find out that um, Slate fought with you in in the, um, the the massacre at Wounded Knee, and he's very upset that Comstock, the the antagonist, is labeling himself as you know the hero of Wounded Knee and the hero of the Boxer Rebellion. When, as far as Slate is concerned, he doesn't remember. Comstock ever being at Wounded Knee, and neither does Booker. They were both there. They have no memory of this guy being there, but he claims he was the hero. Um, the Box Rebellion's different because Booker wasn't involved. You, so you go there, you get some stuff from him. Uh, you're trying to get to the First Lady airship with Elizabeth to basically just get out of the city and get to New York, which is where you're trying to bring her. You're quickly hijacked by the Vox Populi, who are the Freedom Fighters, the uh, revolutionary group of the, of the city. Um, they tell you, hey, we'll give you the airship, but only after you get us some guns, because we need them. And that's where the game starts to get weird, right? Well, then that's where we start to see the central conceit of the game, is that there are alternate realities. Right. Uh, you need to meet this gunsmith, Chen Lin, because he's going to give you the guns. When you get to him, eventually you find out, hey, he's dead. But then these two characters, Rosalind and Robert Lutes, show up, and uh, they, they give you just enough information to let you know, yeah, he's dead here. But, you know, quantum mechanics, every choice we make creates a separate alternate universe. And so there's alternate universes where he's still alive. And that's where Elizabeth opens a tear to let you through into an alternate universe. And I guess we kind of somehow managed to stay completely away from tears in the spoiler-free section, which I'm amazed at. But Elizabeth has the ability to open tears in the fabric of space-time into other realities. And she does this in combat by she might bring in a piece of cover for you to use or some weapons from an alternate universe or... A gun turret that'll fight for you, that kind of stuff. Um, But she has been living in this tower, which siphons away her energy, so she doesn't really have control over it. She can't just bring a tear in. She's got to find one and open it. Um, If she was at full power, she could just open tears anywhere whenever she wanted to. So at this point, they they reveal this tear that's there, and you or Elizabeth opens a tear, you walk through into an alternate reality where the gunsmith Chen Lin is still alive, and this starts to open up things. You realize about these tears. Things are going weird. Or you find him. You find out things are really weird with him. Things have changed in the timeline. Now, instead of Chinese, his wife is white, which was n- uh, not expected. Um, and different things like that. You eventually have to go find his, his guns for him, so he, or his materials so he can make guns. Um, his machinery, I guess, technically not materials. And then you switch over again into another alternate universe where all of a sudden the Vox Populi are in full revolt. And you find out that in that universe, you were also there. Booker DeWitt was there, and he was the hero of the Vox Populi. At this point, you really haven't done much with them. Um, they, they have hijacked your ship, but that's about it. You not only fought with them, but you were a martyr for these people. So 
that's really, I mean, I keep saying this is the part where it gets weird, but it keeps getting progressively weirder. You find out there's this alternate version of you who's dead. You're starting to get some of his memories. Just, you know, your nose is bleeding because your brain can't quite handle the fact that there was two of you. And you're starting to remember, oh, yeah, I fought and died here, even though you, you know, Booker, the Booker you've been playing hasn't. I've got to say that when you step through that tear and you walk out and there's a single uh, woman singing uh, Fortunate Son. It ain't me, it ain't me, I ain't no senator's son, no, it ain't me, it ain't me, I ain't no fortunate one, yeah. As a spirit, as an old spiritual, um, in that tableau with all the red fabric blowing in the wind, and Booker DeWitt, hero of the revolution, and and the smoke of the burning city behind you, I just it's just again one of those striking set pieces in this uh, in this game that just really stayed with me long after the game was over. And and it may have been my second favorite anachronistic cover behind uh, God Only Knows. God Only Knows has got to be my favorite, but that I think Fortunate Son it's just a really well done rendition of uh, Credence's song. Well, since we talk, we're talking about it really quickly, I mean, uh, the ones I've uncovered or heard were uh, Tainted Love and uh, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Girls Just Want to Have Fun, and I know I'm, forget- um, I'm forgetting something. There's a handful of others. A lot of them are from the 30s, so they don't really stick out to you and me as, um, <laughs> as covers, but they were. Uh, but th- yeah, there are a handful of them, and it is all explained in the story, which we'll get to in a second. But so, you're now in this world where you, you died already. But you're walking around, and the Vox Populi leader, Daisy uh, Fitzroy, is not happy about this. Um, as she puts it, you are complicating her narrative, uh, because you, you're a great story to tell the kids of this guy who died for their cause, but if you show up alive, that's a problem. So she tries to have you killed, um, you go through all that, she eventually uh, is killed by Elizabeth, Elizabeth's first act of uh, violence in the game. And this is where she changes into the look. You've seen her in most of the promotional materials, uh, the blue dress and blue coat, white corset, short hair, um, that look, which is a cool look for her. And this is where she starts to really come of age in the story. I mean, a lot of the story is her losing her innocence, um, um, but this is really the part where you really see that. You know, she sheds blood, she cuts her hair, and now she's here for real. And it's striking, too, in contrast, one of the first scenes you have with Elizabeth is you lose her in Battleship Bay because you can't find her and you need to find her and she's found music and it's just dancing. And yeah. she's been she's been trapped in the tower for so long that, you know, she's never been around other people in like a circling you know, a circle dance like that. And, you know, she can't think of anything better, you know, than than that. I mean, we go from that kind of giggly, almost schoolgirl innocence to, you know, her having to kill Daisy Fitzroy to save the life of a young boy. It's a, it's an incredible progression of story arc for a video game. I mean, and she's not even the main character. Although she is in many ways a co-protagonist of the story, um, right. even though even though she is not the the character you play as, it is just as much her story as it is yours. Um, for ways that'll become much more clear as we go along. So Elizabeth is now she's fully assumed her adult persona, if you will, and we didn't talk about, but Elizabeth is missing her uh, her right pinky. She's missing uh, about half of it. And she wears a thimble on the end of it. She doesn't know where, what happened to it. You don't know what happened to it. But that's something that you see throughout the game, which becomes important here. As um, So you get your airship from Daisy Fitzroy. You get it back. Um, and it's very quickly attacked by Songbird, which is the kind of Big Daddy-esque protector 
that uh, that watches over Elizabeth and keeps her trapped in the in the tower and in the city. And this is where you know it takes her away. There's some other stuff I'm skipping over, of course, but of course for the main story, this is what I'm focusing on. It takes her away, and you chase after, and all of a sudden it's snowing. Now the whole rest of this game has been July sixth, yeah, so no snow, no surprise. Um, but all of a sudden it's snowing, you make your way to this house, to Comstock House, and you go in there, and this is where the game takes a horror turn for a bit. Um, not too long, but a little bit. And it was a nice return, because, you know, the first two Bioshock games, very much horror games. And you keep hearing through tears that, oh, Booker never came back, it's been six months, she's starting to lose hope. They, they've they recaptured her, and you realize, you know, something happened, you stepped through a tear when you didn't realize it, and you missed a whole bunch of stuff, and, and she believes you're never coming back. Well, you've you've advanced like I think thirty or forty years into the future because when you do encounter her, she's already you know white haired and matronly. She's she's already grown up. And right, but you don't you, realize that in the beginning. Well, I know, but slowly you find those Vox uh, recorders or whatever as you go through, and you hear more and more. And some of them are are from Elizabeth herself, you know, saying you know he was my last hope, and then after he was gone, I had no more hope, and so I became the lamb. And we find out that Elizabeth has become, you know, the instrument of, of you know, Comstock's destruction, you know, wanting to rain fire down, you know, on the mountains, on the, the cities of men. Yeah, when you finally get to her, like Jim said, she's now quite old. I think it's 70 or 90. I forget off the top of my head. But uh, it's now you realize when you finally get to her, uh, it isn't six months later. It's quite a few years later. It's either December 31st, 1983 or January 1st, 1984 or right there on the threshold of the new year. Um, and Columbia is bombing New York City. They are, they are, what if, what are they but another arc for another time is something you hear a few times through the game. And it's, they are cleansing the earth of all the sin that they perceive below. They are just destroying it. And this is when old Elizabeth, you know, she says she brought you there. You know, it was her who brought you through time to her. Because no matter how many times you would have tried, Songbird would have always stopped you from getting her. She would have, you would have never been able to rescue her. But now that she is to this point and she sees what her people are doing, because they're, they're even beyond her control at this point, she realizes if she can give you one bit of information, and it's a postcard with a code that Elizabeth can break and a picture of a birdcage, if she gives you this information and sends you back to right after you lost Elizabeth, that this should be the right amount of information for you to be able to rescue her from the city before she ever becomes this mad tyrant that she has become. And again, another uh, stunning moment in the game when you look down and watch the bombing of New York City in 1984. Just incredible. And Elizabeth's just kind of standing there, kind of resigned to her fate, you know? Yeah. It's a really incredible scene. So she sends you back in time to either a few days or very briefly after you were first separated from her by song by Songbird. Um, and you find that they are installing a device in her spine that'll basically cause her pain whenever she opens a tear, which is designed to pacify her, keep her from using her powers, and further brainwash her into following her father, uh, Prophet Comstock's, orders and, and ha- helping to turn her into the next version of him. Uh, so you release her, she opens a tear once you've released her um, from their powers, and she opens a tear to what looks pretty much like a scene from Wizard of Oz, Kansas, with this huge tornado. It's this awesome moment in the game. She kills everybody else in the room. So you escape from there, and then you're going to find the Prophet Comstock. You're going to end this once and for all. Elizabeth wants to kill him, but you want to keep her from having to do that. You tell her you'll do it yourself. Um, you make it to his airship. You fight through some waves of enemies. There's, of course, many battles I'm skipping through here in the game, um, but you make it to him. Um, and she gets there first, and he's being very fatherly to her. He's washing some blood off of her hand. He's talking to her in soothing tones. 
and he's telling her how the false prophet, which is you, you have this AD branded on your hand, which is throughout the city everyone's been told the false prophet will become to lead the will come to lead the lamb astray, and he'll know him by his mark. And he says, you know, I should have I should have known this would happen that this false prophet would lead you astray, and I did know it would happen, but I should have known to just tell you the truth, and you would have never gone with this man because you would have understood what a what an evil person Booker DeWitt your character is, and. You know, you're flabbergasted, obviously, because you don't know what's going on. She doesn't know what's going on. And he tells you, Booker, tell her what happened to her finger, to her pinky that she's missing half of. And you don't remember anything. You, you And you um, grab him. You smash his head against this baptismal basin several times. And then you drown him in the basin. And this is when Elizabeth starts to go, what happened to my finger? And you don't remember. So then you fight through another battle. Um, you gain control of Songbird with that cage uh, card that the older Elizabeth gave you because it was the key to being able to control the Songbird. You you beat the last wave of enemies, and then Elizabeth and you instruct Songbird to destroy the siphon, which blocks off her access to her full power to be able to open tears whenever and wherever she wants to. And she is given full power, and at this point, she becomes Dr. Manhattan. I mean, Jim and I both know Watchmen very well. I mean, is there any other way to put this, Jim? If she becomes a Time Lord, she becomes Dr. Manhattan. I'd say more of a Time Lord than Dr. Manhattan, because Dr. Manhattan, I mean, I would say almost the Lutises are almost like Dr. Manhattan, because they seem more, they aren't, they aren't uh, stuck in linear time, you know, the way that, that, um, that Elizabeth is. That's true, although she does seem to gain omniscience across all the multiple realities very quickly. But so, and this is the point where the gameplay is over. You still walk around some, but you're, you're done shooting for the rest of the game. And this is where we get into the really complicated stuff. So, in a nutshell, uh, where to even start? So, you beat those enemies, she gains her full power, and the songbird's starting to come back. You've been controlling him for the last mission, which is really awesome. But you break the control device accidentally, and the bird is coming back after you. You're like, Elizabeth, we've got to run. We can't stop him. And she goes, we don't have to. She opens this huge tear, sucks all of all three of you, you, her, and Songbird through it. And the next thing you know, right in front of you, Songbird is drowning. Behind a window, there's, you know, you're on one side of the window, and the other side is just water, and Songbird is drowning. And she's uh, bidding him goodbye, saying she's sorry, but this is the way it has to be, and trying to comfort Songbird in its last moments as it dies. Surprisingly sad moment, too. I mean, she talks earlier in the game about how Songbird was her only companion, not only her guard. Uh, you know, not only her warden, but also her friend, because she basically grew up with him. I mean, if you think about it, he, she, he was her only companion for years and years all through her childhood. So right. the scene where she drowns him in the waters of rapture is just, you know, she's just, you know, very calming and very soothing to him. And it's, just, it's a very touching scene. I mean, I was, I was kind of flabbergasted by it. Right, right. And so you, you're looking through the window at Songbird. As Songbird falls away into the water, behind him is a big daddy and a little sister in a tube. And you turn around and realize you're in the welcome center to Rapture from Bioshock 1. So how big of a holy crap moment was that? Huge. Plus, <laughs> it, it, it's really interesting. You know, I remember when the previews for um, Bioshock Infinite came out and they were like, oh, well, the Vigors are just like plasmids. And, you know, oh, the Somber is just like the big daddy, blah, 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 blah. You're just, you're just plagiarizing yourself. You know, all these, like, trolls. You realize now that Levine and his team built into the story a reason why 
those things were so derivative from the first Bioshock game. Right, right. And that is astounding to me. I just wanted to stand up and applaud when I heard that. <laughs> because all, yeah. because why are they borrowed? Because the people in Columbia, through the tears, had access to Rapture and borrowed them themselves. Right. That, that was a genius story turn for me. Yeah, and we'll get into a little bit more of the specifics after the, of that after we get after we go through the ending here. But um, so you're very confused. Obviously, it's a city at the bottom of the ocean. That's ridiculous to you, even though you just came from a city flying above the clouds. And Elizabeth, like we said, has become fully omniscient at this point. She's all knowing, and so she has you get in the bathosphere. You go up to the top where the lighthouse is, not the lighthouse from Columbia, the lighthouse from Rapture. And this is where she starts to info dump and explain to you exactly what's going on and walking through some very important moments in your life. I love the way she puts it. In every uh, timeline, there are constants and variables. Right. You know, there's always a lighthouse. There's always a man. There's always a city. You know, and, you know, there are constants in every story, but there are also variables. And that's, that was a, I just thought that was a nice thematic way to put a nice bow on the whole idea of, you know, all, you know multitude of realities. Right. So she starts taking you through these doors and you start to relive moments from your past to uncover what's going on. So first it goes to uh, this baptism that happened after Wounded Knee. And you walk up and this preacher comes, goes to you and he says, you ready to accept this baptism? And you start to, and at the last moment you go, you know what? This isn't for me. N- this water isn't going to wash away my sins. My sins are too terrible. And you walk away from the baptism. Um, and then you kind of relive a little bit of what happened in your life after that. You, you got married, you had a daughter, your wife died in childbirth, and just like we talked about in the non-spoiler portion, you became a drunk, you became a gambling addict, um, you became very much in debt. And that's when a person came to you, um, Robert Lutis, who you, you see throughout the game, but he comes to you and he says, hey, Booker DeWitt, hey, you're 16 at the time, and it's 1900, or 19, uh, 1893, so, you know, even this is a little bit ridiculous, it still does fit with the time period and the fact that you're a young idiot. But you are completely in debt, but we can wipe away your debt. Bring us the girl and wipe away the debt. But the girl he's talking about is not the girl you've thought the whole time. The girl he's talking about is your daughter, Anna. And you realize that off your office, which you've been in your office a few times, but off that office in the next room is a infant baby girl. And Elizabeth is right there next to you explaining this is what you did. You don't remember it because you were crossing over between these realities and it messes with your memories. But this is your daughter, Anna, and you gave her to this man. So you see as you give her to Robert Lutis, he goes away. And then very quickly, um, you realize what a grave mistake you've made. This is stupid. This is terrible. And you go to retrieve your daughter. And when you went to retrieve your daughter, who was there taking her? None other than a somewhat younger Zachary Comstock. And he was stealing her from your reality into his. And the way I'm explaining this sounds stupid, but it's really cool in the game. And so the way, what happened was when you saw him bringing her through a Terran reality into Columbia, you ran over and tried to stop him. And in doing so, as he walked through the portal, your daughter Anna reached out her hand to you, trying to stay with you. And the portal closed on her pinky, severing it, which is why Elizabeth, your daughter which is the, one of the big reveals of the game, is missing half her pinky because you sold her to wipe away your debt to this man Comstock many years ago and you'd forgotten about it because of the, the universe hopping. He took your daughter from you. You gave him, more, more honestly, you gave him your daughter. That's why it was your job to rescue her from this tower because the Lutes twins, who are the scientists who helped make Rapture, or not Rapture, helped make Columbia float, 
and all these other things. They were killed. They became basically Dr. Manhattan because they died in an explosion of one of their machines that was sabotaged. They have tried to, A, help you redeem yourself and get your daughter back, but also try to stop 1984 from happening. They're trying to stop the bombing of New York. Um, so you're a thought experiment, basically. You're the 123rd Booker who's gone through this experiment of trying to free your daughter. Um, and then we come to the big final reveal, because that's not the only big reveal. You're brought back to, back to the place where you refuse baptism. And this is where the reveal happens that, yeah, you refuse baptism. But there was another reality, there was many other realities, where you didn't, where you took the baptism. And in the realities where you refused the baptism, you became Booker DeWitt, Pinkerton, drunk, gambler, terrible father. But in the realities where you accepted the baptism, you changed your name to Zachary Comstock. You became an over overachieving religious zealot. <laughs> you became a, a prophet. You started seeing through these tears with the help of the Lutesses, and you saw the future, and you viewed this as a sign from God that what you were doing was right. You built this flying city in the clouds. You were rendled, rendered infertile by all the time-traveling technology. It made you older. It gave you cancer. It made you infertile. And so you needed a daughter to carry on your legacy. You hopped across to the next universe, stole your daughter, stole a daughter from a version of you that wasn't sterile, brought her back over, raised her as the lamb so she could go kill everybody in New York and the rest of the world, presumably in the future. And now you're given this choice. Well, you're not even given a choice. You're told what is going to happen. Anybody who goes under the water comes out as Zachary Comstock, this megalomaniacal evil person. Not that Booker DeWitt was a good guy either. But if you go under the water, you come out as him. And if you want to rip out this weed by its root, you have to go back to the beginning. And uh, Booker, before he realizes that the same person wants to go back in time with Elizabeth's help and kill Comstock in his crib as a baby, which is a horrible thing to do, but it's also where his mindset is. And that's when Elizabeth, you know, explains to you what's happening. You start to see other versions of Elizabeth from different realities. And they explain to you that the person who went under was Comstock. That means that was his birth. He never had a childhood, if you will. His rebirth, his being born again, was the moment of the birth of Comstock. And so the only way to kill Comstock is to make sure that the person who goes under the water never comes out. And so at the end of the game, you take the place of yourself as a younger man. Uh, You go under for baptism. The multitudes of Elizabeths hold you under the water. You drown. They start to disappear one by one as the music plays. Credits roll. Credits roll, credits roll, credits roll. You have a nice little behind-the-scenes filming of one of the portions of the game uh, with the voice actors, and then you have an after credit scene where you wake up in your office, you hear the baby music coming from the room next door, which you've heard all throughout the game. You open the door to see if your daughter is there. You say, Anna, is that you? And before you can see if the crib is empty or full, cuts to black, that's the end of the game. And now that I've just given that horrible run-through of everything, because it sounds awful when I explain it this way, trust me, it isn't. Um, Hopefully, if you're listening to this, you've already played the game. What are our thoughts on this, Jim, now that I've exhausted my voice and exhausted my brain and and just remembering everything that happened, with your help, of course, um, what are your thoughts on this? Did did he die? Does it kill all of the bookers? Does it just kill the ones who become Comstock? What does the scene after the credits mean? This is where we get to the meat of everything. Well, uh, I'm to answer your last question first, if you notice in the scene that where the, all the Elizabeths holding down, one Elizabeth remains. Like, they all fade away except for one. And then the screen cuts to black, which could be right. taken either as her disappearing or everything disappearing. 
Right. Or, in that one reality, Anna DeWitt survived and she was Anna DeWitt. Oh, yeah. We should probably said that. Her name's Anna. That's what the AD means on your hand. Right. But um, that's that's that was my surmise. The, the one who's, I mean, I know it's kind of an Inception-style ending. <laughs> but, right, you know, right. The actor credit sequence. But uh, as far as I was concerned, that's what I, I thought she, uh, in the one timeline, you know, he hadn't given her away because there was no Comstock to come take her away. You know, in the one timeline, she survived. Right, I mean, and that's the way a lot of people are understanding it, and I think it's a, it's a legitimate um, reading of the ending is that all that killing the person under the water did was kill every version of Comstock that would ever existed. That allows Booker DeWitt, the non-Comstock version, to live on. Comstock never steals his daughter, never buys his daughter from him, and so then he's able to live with his daughter, still a drunk, still a gambler, but possibly now he still has this information of his, in his head of what happened, and he will be able to live his life with his daughter and turn his life around, hopefully. I had a slightly different reading of the game. Now, I think the one you just said and the, and the one I reiterated is perfectly reasonable and it fits within the the barriers of what you see in the game. But my, my reading was a little bit more metaphysical, if you will. And that is every time you see your office, Sans one when, when Elizabeth is bringing you back in time um, and, and you see it one time, it's always monochrome. All the colors been leached out. It's very fuzzy. It feels like a dream sequence or a memory or... Something that's not real. And this happens at a few points in the game where you have flashbacks to there, usually when you are dying. Um, it's either a point where you have been knocked unconscious, uh, you have uh, lost all the air in your lungs. Um, if you are killed and Elizabeth is not allowed around to revive you, you wake up in the office, you open the door, and you step back out into Columbia. My reading is that whenever this happens, he is unconscious, he's dreaming, or he's died for a second and basically gone to his afterlife. And that, you know, when he wakes back up, he's being kicked back out into the real world, but he's continuing from there. And so my reading of the ending, because that after credit sequence is also in the almost black and white monochrome palette and feel, is that Booker is dead and that this action killed all the Bookers. And so when he dies, he has now gone to his afterlife. And the real question is, were his actions enough to atone for what he has done? And does he spend an eternity with his daughter? Or were his actions so evil that they were not uh, washed away? And is now he trapped in a reality without his daughter, with the room there, with the empty crib, to remind him of his sin and his evil deeds for all of eternity? Like I said, the other version that you gave is just as just as reasonable and doesn't re rely so much on metaphysics and uh, spirituality, but it's just more of a quantum mechanics reading, which I think a lot more people would be more happy with. I think the fact that this, uh, this ending has so many interpretations uh, just speaks to the, the, the thought and the depth of the game itself. You know, I mean, to, to think that you could have, a, you know, a whole you know, group dissertation on what this ending meant and, you know, how it played out and everything and have all these different interpretations of the, of the ending and yet not be um, upset about it like the end of Mass Effect 3 maybe. Right, uh, some right. people were, you know, as far as, you know, being vague. This isn't, this explains everything. It connects all the dots, but it still leaves enough of the, enough for you to put the picture together, you know? Right. And a lot of that's going to depend on how many voxophones, the sound clips you found, how many... Uh, different corners of the world you explored, how many of the kinetoscopes, the Nickelodeons that you found and watched the movies of, how closely you paid attention. Because um, 
Jim and I both, we both finished this game. Um, I've finished it multiple times. He's working on it a second time. We've both watched and read and listened to a lot of reviews and a lot of spoiler casts and a lot of people explaining what was going on. And it was quite clear, at least to me, and from talking to Jim as well, this seems to be the case with you, um, but I'll let you speak for yourself, in that a lot of people did not understand what was going on. They may have understood the bigger picture, but they did not find all the little sound clips. They did not listen to them. They did not piece them together because you'd have four people in a room discussing this game, three of them going, yeah, but what about X? X was never explained. And the fourth person would go, no, 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 it was explained over here. And they'd ignore the person or they wouldn't understand it. Um, so you want to run through some of the different things that people seem to have misconceptions on? Well, as far as the, uh, the anachronistic music is concerned, that was the one Fink brother just basically uh, opening terrorists to 1984 and listening to the music and, and tra- you know, transcribing um, the, uh, I know that was something that they seemed, you know, not to be, they thought was not explained, you know, well enough or adequately enough. I just, I, I can't emphasize enough. I, I lucked up. I gained that strategy guide being able to read all the Vox Quarter, uh, recordings. And that really filled in a lot of the game for me. I'm sure they're available online. Uh, if you wanted to look them up, but I think there's a YouTube video. That's just the audio of all of them cut together, start to finish. Oh, that would be great because that really like puts in the backstory it explains that robert and rosalind lutis are, are alternate uh you know alternate timeline versions of each other yeah they're not twins they're the they're, same person they're the same person just from two different timelines the plot against them where comstock turns against them and tries to kill them and thus uh, makes them unstuck in time uh that whole thing is, is explained um you know how fink gets the technology to do what he does uh, as far as uh, the vigors and uh, the vending machines and where he gets the inspiration for the songbird all that's in the vox corridors um, I mean, there's a wealth of storytelling. And it was the same way in Bio- the original Bioshock, too. The the tape recorders that you found really, like, told the story, and it's, it's true here, too. Uh, one of the other big things I saw some people were missing was, how did Elizabeth get these powers to open tears? Um, because while other people can see the tears, they can interact with the tears, she's the only one who can open them herself, or who can create them, or who can physically open them without the aid of machinery. And that is because when she, as a baby, was brought through the portal and her pinky was severed, part of her now existed in two different universes. And because of that, I think it was uh, Rosalind Lutes explains it as, the the universe does not like peas in with its porridge. In other words, it doesn't like when things are messed up, so it allows her to open these tears so that she could theoretically get back to her other, not half, but other, you know, 2% and become whole again. And so that is why she has been given the ability to open these tears. She exists in two different universes as one person, not like a not like a Lutess or a Comstock or anybody else who has a version in each universe. One single version of her exists in two universes at the same time. It's also uh, funny if you go back and play a second time how many how ironic some of the Vox recordings are. Um, Everything is foreshadowed before you right. realize what's going on. Exactly. It's amazing how subtle it is. The very first recording you find, you know, you must embrace the sinner within as well as the, as well as the prophet. You know, um, all these things that are just have so much more meaning when you go back and play a second time. Yeah. Um, what else? Well, you talked about. Uh, Jeremiah and Albert Fink. Albert Fink was a musician who was stealing all the music from the future and doing these alternate, these 1912 versions, which is why we get all this cool music in the game. His brother, Jeremiah Fink, was the one who was stealing technology. So presumably, and this is not said explicitly, but it's pretty well implied, he stole the idea for Vigors from Plasmids from Rapture. He glimpsed into another world and saw how they made the Big Daddies. Again, it's not said specifically, but it's very heavily implied. And he used that design to build the Songbird. 
right? He says uh, he has seen an incredible biologist who melts man with machine. So that also is how they came about with the handyman uh, in Bioshock Infinite as well. Right. Uh, so that's why they both have, I mean, both the handyman and songbird have kind of design elements of the big daddy. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a far jump to say that that's also where the vigors came from, too. Um, it's definitely alluded to in, in his Fox Corian where he says, you know, I've met a biologist and such wonders they've shown me. We would right, assume, right, right. assume that's either Sue Chong or Tenenbaum from, um, from Rapture. Right. Uh, another big thing I've seen a lot of confusion on, and this is not one that's explicitly laid out. There's a little bit more interpretation allowed, but is you go to Rapture, obviously. Um, and part of that is you get in the bathosphere. Now, in Bioshock 1, you learn that they lock down the bathosphere so only Andrew Ryan and his inner circle, not just Andrew Ryan, which is what people keep saying online, and it's not true. It's Andrew Ryan and his inner circle can use the bathospheres through genetic locks, um, which is why in, the, in Bioshock you're able to, because spoilers for the original Bioshock, you're his son, Jack Ryan, which I always find funny when, when they reveal the full name. What? Um, yeah, Jim, you know what I'm talking about. So people have been like, oh, does that mean that Booker and slash Comstock is Jack or Andrew Ryan from an alternate reality? Now, possibly, because a lot of it is talked about in the themes in that there's always a man, there's always a lighthouse, there's always a city, and that these type of events repeat themselves throughout the repeat themselves throughout the universes, throughout the multiverse. I don't really read it as they're the same person, partially because Andrew Ryan would have already been alive, a young boy in Russia, um, Andrew... Ryanovsky, I think was his full name, something like that, um, living through the Bolsheviks and all that. So that doesn't really match up timeline-wise. But also it explicitly says in the sound recorder in Bioshock that they're getting this information was that the time lock or that the genetic lock doesn't really work. It'll work for sisters, brothers, cousins, kids, and presumably even more than that. Also throw in the fact that Elizabeth is a time lord at this point. She can just make things work. She's she can transport you through time and space. I'm sure she can convince this machine to work. And I took it more as a thematic linkage just of, you know, Ken Levine and the Irrational Team commenting on, this is just how these games work. There's always a guy with a big idea who has this city, and, you know, there's a lighthouse that's the entryway to it. And that's just kind of the thematic link. I didn't take it as a literal link, but did you take it as a literal link? No, I think that you're just kind of complicating things. If you're trying to tie Booker DeWitt in, in his you know timeline in with Andrew Ryan, I think you know obviously it's a different parallel universe. So who knows what the Booker DeWitt of that universe would be? You know. Yeah, and who knows if it's even the same exact version of Rapture you were in in Bioshock One? Right. Exactly. So, I mean, it could, it's possible, but I don't. I mean, I really see that as kind of a stretch. Uh, another thing I've seen going around is. Um, so, Songbird drowns outside of Rapture, sinks down to the bottom of the ocean, and then you leave Rapture. But, people have found a similar sound clip to the sound that Songbird makes in video from the original Bioshock, video that was posted on YouTube like four years ago, so it's not like it was doctored, um, where in the background you can hear a similar sound. And they're trying to say that, hey, this was foreshadowing for Songbird, this was all planned from the beginning. Would that be awesome? Yeah, but I'm calling BS because in addition to the fact that that would be ridiculous because they hadn't even written this game out, um, let's see, from a storyline perspective, or, or from, a, from a developer standpoint, sound engineers, sound designers reuse sounds all the time. And this is not, um, this is not uncommon. It happens in movies. It happens in video games. You have a limited sound library. You use sounds over and over again in different ways. You slow them down. You speed them up. You change the pitch. All different things because you want to make the most of them. Beyond that, um, the welcome setter you're in in Bioshock Infinite, 
is much less run down than the Welcome Center you're in in the beginning of Bioshock 1. Yeah, I was going to make that point too, because it's definitely not in as much disrepair as the beginning of Bioshock 1. Which means you are doing, in Bioshock Infinite, assuming it's the same version of Rapture, those events happen before Jack ever gets down there. Which means there's no possible way that 10 hours into Bioshock 1, he's hearing something that happened before that. You know what I mean? Um, it just doesn't work from a timeline perspective. Unless a bunch of really OCD splicers came through and fixed up the Welcome Center after everything happened. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Ken Levine's friend and his team are pretty awesome, but they're not that awesome. Also, they, they went through and changed the, the sound the songbird makes while they were developing the game. It used to be much deeper and similar to a Big Daddy, and they changed it to make it more similar to a bird screeching. So... You know, there's all kinds of reasons. Like I said, it would be cool if that worked. It just doesn't work. Let's be realistic here, folks. What else? Is there anything else you want to bring up? I've been talking a lot. No, I think we, uh, we've we covered all the bases. Um, again, uh, the info is all there, you know, for the story. It just it seems like some people just don't. This is definitely not a game you want to rush through, you know. No, I, you I, want to explore every corner in this game if you want the full story. I mean, I've been moving everything this week, but that's why I've only been played through it once is because I think... Average playthrough for people has been like 12 or 15 hours. I, my playthrough was almost 20. Same with me. Same with me. For both the, the medium playthrough and the 1999 playthrough, I took my time. And I think if you do take your time and find all the recordings and, and find you know, the context clues, you're going to find the whole story. And I'm just amazed that, I mean, as a father, it made my eyes well up with tears. And it's the first time it's ever happened to me in a video game uh, when Booker DeWitt gave Anna away. You know, I, I just couldn't I just couldn't believe it. It was, it was shocking and... To have a video game affect me like that, I, I, as you know, I've been playing video games since like the Atari Twenty Six Hundred, um, just really speaks to me as like the the future of the medium. It's just such a weird artistic medium. I mean, imagine if you were reading a book and you read the first two or three chapters, and then you had to take a test <laughs> on what you had read, or, or even an unrelated test. Like so, you had so to read, high school, you're saying? Well, you'd have to say, well, say like you're reading a book and you had to read the read the first two or three chapters, and then you had to take a test before you were allowed to read the rest of it. That's kind of what Bioshock Infinite is. It's like, here's this great story, this great setting, uh, this this great narrative. Okay, now test your shooting prowess. Okay? Have you have you done that? Have you made, made it past that? Great. Okay, here's some more of the story. I mean, think about it. If any other art form asked that much of you, you probably wouldn't do it. It probably wouldn't be worth the effort to read a book, because you'd have to constantly be you know, tested on your comprehension as you went through or what have you. It's, it's an, but the way they, they're able to inter, integrate the, the shooting mechanic and the storytelling in this is, is, I mean, it's unlike anything I've ever seen before. It just really, um, and, and the ending very much affected me. And it's amazing to me that, you know, this ending is, is people really aren't mad about the ending like they were, like I said, with Mass Effect 3, they aren't upset about it, but it is open to interpretation, which I think is great. And, um, I just I could not be more impressed with the way they, they sewed the story up and explained everything because that's like my one pet peeve, and that's probably why I'll never watch Lost. <laughs> it's because I'm I'm a stickler for that. I have to have an explanation, and um, this this did that admirably. Well, we can disagree about Lost because I think they did explain enough stuff, but that's a that's a that's a story for many other shows that we've already done. Um, I guess at this point we should open it up to the listeners. I'm going to post this episode on Reddit in the Bioshock forum. So hopefully uh, we get some new people who are listening to this. Uh, agree, 
disagree, let us know. Email us at comments at legionofdudes.com um, or leave us a voicemail, 516-468-7912. You can check out all of our other great shows on the HHW LOD network. We've got Half Hour Wasted. We've got the Walking Dead TV podcast out now with Aaron and Abe, a whole bunch of others, uh, and more to come. You can tweet me directly at Jordan FRM Jersey. That's at J O R D A N F R M Jersey. And Jim, what's your Twitter? At Yoda Jones, all one word, as it sounds, Yoda Jones. So, do you agree with us? Do you disagree with us? Do you think we're idiots? Do you think we're geniuses because you're an idiot? I don't know, because we're not geniuses. Sorry to, to spoil that for you. But, uh, what did you think of the game? Uh, what did you think of our synopsis? What did you think of the ending? Do you disagree? Do you agree? Do you have something to add? Let us know. We'd love to hear it, and we'll probably talk about it on the next BS show or something, or, or do another little supplementary Bioshock cast. You never know. Jim and I love this game, so I, I at least wouldn't mind talking about it some more. Like I said, check out all the other shows on the network, and have a good week, everybody. Go out and play some Bioshock Infinite. It's an awesome game. Hands with the wolves come tumbling down. They do 